1: Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the New Books in History, a channel in the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host for this episode. I am here today with the great Dr. Ara Merjan, professor of Italian studies and, affili- and an affiliate of the Institute of Fine Arts and the Department of History at NYU. He's the author of Giorgio di Chirico and the Metaphysical City, Nietzsche, Modernism, Paris, for, out with uh, Yale University Press in 2014, and the book we'll be discussing today, "Against the Avant-Garde: Pier Paolo Pasolini, Contemporary Art, and Neo Capitalism," out with the
0: University of Chicago Press in twenty twenty.
1: Hello, Ara. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. How are you?
0: Hi, Yana. I'm terrific. I'm really happy to be with you as well.
1: Wonderful news. How's New York? Uh,
0: it's doing pretty well. It was, you know, it was touch and go in the spring and early summer, but the last few months, there's been a degree of normality back, people eating outside, people going to the gym again, Uh, you know, things are still strange, but um, hopefully we can keep our numbers good as they've been. How are things on your side of the pond?
1: The weekend is not good in Amsterdam. We're back under second lockdown, basically. Um, But we'll see. Um, We're all optimistic. It's funny, right? We're beginning to we're getting to see how people are really adaptable. Um, You know, I, I remember vaguely riding my bicycle to work. I, I'll do it again, right? You will, you will. Yeah, you will. we will. Oh, it's fine. Um, it's a blustery, beautiful evening in Amsterdam, and it's kind of perfect. It's the perfect time to talk about um, sun-baked uh, Italy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because that's what you think about with the art that we're going to talk about today, right?
0: Exactly.
1: Okay, so my very first question is a really kind of broad. Um, so how, it's it's how did you get here? so you study 20th century Italy focusing on artistic expression of several kinds and philosophy and specifically a group of kind of pensive moody artistic Mediterranean men so I, I mean like, on some level on some level it was probably inevitable that you were gonna get to Pasolini yeah, but, um,
0: yeah that's interesting I mean um, de Currico was uh, you know Pasolini's a, d- a tough character to study but uh, de Currico was a real curmudgeon so in some ways um, it was an, a nice change. In some ways, it was uh, even harder because uh, I have so, such enormous respect for Pasolini that it, whenever you are dealing with someone critically, it's important not to be sort of seduced by um, their cult of personality. So um, I, while I, you know, politically I shared so much more with, uh, with Pasolini than with the, the patrician Nietzschean uh, de Chirico, um, it had its own challenges, um, but, you know, I suppose the way that I got there was uh, in graduate school. I took a, a seminar my first year on Italian neorealism and Marxism, and uh, I really got into the history of Italian aesthetics uh, of the 20th century through the cinema um, to start with. And so, um In some ways, this was kind of a return to that early study after I finished the decurical project. And I've always been drawn to Pasolini for a number of different reasons, which um, obviously we'll get to. So uh, the project was kind of on the back burner in the back of my mind for for many years. And uh, as we'll talk about, Pasolini studied at university with a great Italian historian, Roberto Longhi, uh, one of the most distinguished critics and art historians in, in Italy's 20th century. So uh, as an art historian who teaches in an Italian department now at NYU, um, uh, I was able to come at the project from a couple of different angles, and it allowed me to kind of put interdisciplinarity into practice, I suppose.
1: Yeah, that, that works, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and he is he's such an important figure, and he's so this mesmerizing, polarizing. everyone has an opinion on Pasolini, I think um i'm I was really excited to read this and hear your take. Um, so before we get into the meat of the book and your arguments, I, I want to talk about your source material and your uh, methodology. So you know the phrase dizzying array" is a cliche, but um <laughs> I think I think I actually I felt it I felt that on this kind of uh, atomic level when I was trying to just catalog in my head the your references uh, and I mean you start with a Monty Python skit and go from there so uh, do you want to comment yeah. on this yes, can you tell true. it <laughs>
0: that's a terrific question um, yeah I, I, it's funny you know in the United States Posolini is known chiefly as a filmmaker um, he made his first feature film. Um, in the early 1960s, and that's really what uh, led to his fame uh, on this side of the Atlantic. To some degree, also for literary folk, they know him also as a poet. In Italy, um, and to a great extent in France, he was known um, for all of the other vocations which he um, maintained simultaneously, which was everything from playwright to film theorist to polemicist to journalist to uh, political gadfly... Um, to painter himself, actually, he was a, um, I would say, dilettante painter who uh, intermittently engaged with the practice starting from his late adolescence, abandoning it at some point um, in uh, the uh, late 50s, early 60s, and then taking it up again in a number of instances. And so um, the fact that he had this art historical training, but was also a practicing painter to some degree and left uh, literature essentially for a time to pursue the cinema meant that inevitably there were going to be all of these different threads. Um, uh, the most, the, the, the angle from which I was coming, and of course, you know, as you said, because he's such a prominent um, and polemical figure there are entire libraries now on puzzling work. So my particular um, line of inquiry was his relationship, his deeply fraught and ambivalent and productively ambivalent relationship to what we would call um, the art world. Um, And so uh, as you noted, that really encompassed and comprised everything from um, kind of more popular, um, even uh, parodic, References to him in Monty Python sketches to um, the more kind of granular level of his own film theory and how that related to contemporary aesthetics. Um, and so everything from, I guess, uh, the high to low. I mean, Pasolini at one point himself acknowledges that his work uh, is what he calls extravagantly interdisciplinary. And I, I If I have retained even the faintest whiff of that in the book, I'll be proud um, because it it really is in in some ways difficult to to pigeonhole him or to limit him to one genre or medium or or discourse. Um, and yet at the same time, there are some really kind of consistent threads in his work. And you know, one of them is this profound dedication to figurative, what he would call plastic. Uh, representation, that he really approaches uh, representation through figurative de- depictions of the body. Um, and so throughout the 60s, when painting was began to become essentially under fire with the neo-avant-garde as a kind of outmoded um, and even reactionary practice, he still clung to painting as a reference point for his cinema, just as his more confessional and lyrical poetry chafed against the grain of neo-avant-garde literature, which insisted that poets engage with popular culture, with consumerism, the, the notion essentially that um, that language now is inevitably infected, um, even high language, by the most lowbrow of um, technocratic and um, consumerist discourses, and yet he. Again, stubbornly clung to um, lyrical poetry as another kind of redoubt or or realm, um, an embattled fortress realm against um, what he saw to be um, the, the, the horrors of consumerist culture. That's
1: I'm I'm clenching my fists along with him in this fight. I, is, is it charming? Is that annoying? I don't I don't know. But I mean, I guess that's the question, right? Um, well, I
0: mean, it's, it's funny that you say that because you know he lived his aesthetic and political struggle on the level of the body, and that is something that you know I talk about in the fourth chapter on performance. In fact, there is a whole theory by his his lifelong friend, who was a painter and communist. Um, from the same region, uh, Friuli, uh, Giuseppe Zigaina, who even had this, um, in my opinion, deeply fanciful and overwrought and ultimately misguided theory that Pasolini, even Pasolini's death, um, uh, you know, when he was uh, he was killed um, in the wee hours of the morning uh, on a beach near Ostia. Um, on the coast outside of Rome by a hustler with whom he had had a sexual tryst, Um, Zigaina essentially elaborated this entire theory that even Pasolini's death um, was willed by him, even perhaps planned by him, as a culmination of a performative existence. And so we even have Pasolini starring in films. Um, He stars in a film in the early 1960s um, called Il Gobbo, the Hunchback, and he plays a partisan fighter who is um, essentially crucified by these fascist interrogators. It's impossible not to read his life through these, these terms as a kind of martyr. And in fact, his own death, as we'll talk about, um, remains under the shadow uh, of, um, of lingering stubborn doubt as to whether or not it was this one sole hustler who um, who murdered him, or whether there, he was operating with the, you know, physical and moral support of neo-fascist um, forces, who were, you know, greatly disgruntled with Pasolini's uh, relentless um, ideological battle. So it was a battle that he really lived on the level of the body. So to the extent that you're clenching your fist, um, I in fact have a close-up of Pasolini's fist clenched as he is um, performing this scene. As a, a a partisan being interrogated, and um, in some ways, you know, the boundaries between his life and his art were continually worn away, and uh, you know, in a sense, his life does become this performative. Um, you know, th- there's a, actually a, a, a newspaper front page from um, this uh, this this journal Lo Specchio from 1962, and it shows Pasolini hitting back against. Um, People in this crowd um, who physically attacked him after the screening of Mama Roma, which was his second feature-length film, um, and you know the headline says um, "slaps for Pasolini." Um, hanno applaudito Roma sulla faccia del regista. So they applauded Pasolini on his face with slaps, um, meaning that you know even their clapping was essentially something that he received physically as a form of violence. So i'm I'm thrilled to hear that you're clenching your fist, and it's very, very appropriate,
1: <laughs> wonderful. All right. Um, you know, from there, it's a really easy like uh, you've already brought up a lot of what I want you to talk about. and when i what I want you to he- want to hear about um is kind of the the Pausolini quandary is that he's he's extremely difficult to capture, right? By his contemporaries, by scholar sense. Um I think the Pausolini worshippers would call him ineffable. Uh, you seem to be much less interested in maintaining the cult, which is nice. But um, so, I mean, this this difficulty of getting, the difficulty of wrapping your arms around him, much less your brain, I think is interesting. So, but I'm curious to hear what you would describe as the fundamental question you're trying to answer here.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's <laughs> another, <laughs> it's a tough thing to encapsulate, but um, you're right that there is, um, you know, up front, there is the kind of hagiographic puzzolini. Um, in which he is is made a martyr not only to his own cause not only to his own life essentially for which he you know paid again on the level of his own body, um, uh, but teasing that out to the extent that we can from his aesthetic and ideological and even ethical imperatives. Um, of the of larger project. And what I was most interested in is was this paradox that we think of Pasolini as the most um, iconoclastic, um, heterodox, um, uh, avant-garde uh, individuals of the later part of the um, uh, the second half of the 20th century. And yet, Um, his uh, aesthetics, and to some degree his ideological principles, um, remain deeply conservative. Um, So I really wanted to, um, I suppose, ply uh, that paradox to really home in on the extent to which it's strange, or or, um, not strange so much as remarkable and significant and profound, that um, a, a, an individual who was so embattled against the avant-garde on an ideological what he saw on an ideological level was also a lightning rod for that same avant-garde I mean um, and we uh, see that to a great extent at the end of the book where you know the catalog of artists working today on Pasolini is just absolutely overwhelming I mean uh, artists as diverse as William Kentridge to Paul Chan um, from Richard Serra to Grazia Tallderi. Um, but even during his lifetime, his cinema, his poetry um, was uh, something that we obviously uh, is, is something that's part of um, you know the long arc of modernism. And he you know, he claims to have been converted to poetry by Rimbaud and Baudelaire. So he was someone that was long steeped in what we would call, the avant-garde in aesthetic terms, um, and yet at the same time um, incorporated avant-garde elements to, uh, to ends which oftentimes went against the grain of what we would consider um, the neo-avant-garde after World War II. So, you know, why is it that this individual who we think of as so um, radical um, in his politics can be so uh, at the same time conservative in some of his aesthetic pensions and yet at the same time exploit certain avant-garde tendencies that's what i really wanted to um, to get at is the the weight the the extent to which um, what we take for granted as a, a kind of neat lineup between um, avant-garde aesthetics and leftist politics can actually be much more nuanced and, and complex and to some extent paradoxical.
1: Wonderful. All right. Um, so then you go about answering this question um, with what are essentially case studies in order, abstraction, pop, arte povera, and performance. Um, and I'm interested in why you chose these areas, but let, let's go into arte povera in detail. Um, talk to me about why, what, what you wanted to do with Arte Povera and why you chose that, this m- movement.
0: Sure. Um, it, it, by way of, of talking about that, it, it would help to have a little bit of background on um, his own origins, which bear significantly upon his relationship um, to Arte Povera, which was in many ways a non-relationship. I don't believe Pasolini even knew that Arte Povera existed. Um, I don't think he, he, he certainly never mentioned it in any of his writings or interviews, and he remained kind of willfully, proudly ignorant of contemporary artistic tra- trends. And yet, as I examine in the book, there are significant overlaps, both biographical, but also um, intellectual and aesthetics, uh, aesthetic ones between both of those projects. But one of the key elements of Pasolini's own biography, which bears upon his Um, relationship to Arte Povera is that he, after moving around um, a great deal in his youth with um, a father who was actually um, in the, uh, served in the fascist infantry, um, and a mother who was from um, Friuli, which is a a province um, north of Venice in northeastern Italy, um, the family settled down in this region of Friuli, which was the native region of his mother. for whom he had a lifelong, almost preternatural um, attachment. Um, And he really sunk his roots into uh, this region in a way that was, again, almost bodily, sensory, on the level of the textures of peasant life, the smells, um, but also on the level of language. Friuli has its own um, dialect, Friulano, which is um, to some degree... Um, its own language and a language in which, um, Pasolini wrote a lot of his earlier poet poetry as an adolescent. And, um, basically, what he did was he elevated this, um, this dialect, which was a you know conversational vernacular, to the level of quote unquote high literature by writing um, lyrical poetry in it, and, um. His attachment to the peasantry, to day laborers and farm workers, um, both politically, because he was um, from very early on an avid member of the Communist Party, of the local Communist Party, for which he gave um, addresses and went to youth conferences, but also on a bodily and erotic level. He was um, someone who was always attracted to sort of the more rough and um, humble um, uh, types of uh from you know the start of his erotic life and in many ways he came to graft um those pensions and desires onto um the roman borgata which uh for those who are not familiar with the term is essentially sort of the outskirts of on the city of of rome the slums the shanty towns in which um, the sort of disaffected communities live cut off from the city's services and institutions, linguistically different with a very strong Roman um, vernacular. And it was here that Pasolini lived um, for a time after he fled to Rome. He was kicked out of the Communist Party. He, was, um, uh, he lost his job as a teacher for um, indiscretions with youth and, um, Uh, with local youth, which was, uh, you know, a case that was pressed by local parents in ways that um, seemed somewhat dubious. But in any case, in great shame and in great haste, he and his mother fled the region to Rome, lived in um, real poverty for a number of years as his mother cleaned houses, and Pasolini um, served as a teacher before he broke into um, the Roman literary scene as a poet. And so in terms of his uh, eventual um, uh the, the the resonances between his work and Arte Povera, which I'll talk about, um, in, in a way, uh he never left that peasant um Eden that was Friuli. It was a region that was, um, you know, with respect to the rest of Italy, um uh backward. Um and that is a word that he would have he did in fact prize greatly. For him, um you know one of marxism's great promises was this um not only a kind of honoring of history but a sense uh, of um maintaining a a, a a genuine relationship to um to the working class to the subproletariat in ways that rejected our um uh, you know notions of quote-unquote economic progress um, and development, and so that is, you know, you spoke about Pasolini's um, the polemical aspects of his work and his personhood, and and you're absolutely right to the extent that some of, interestingly enough, some of those of Pasolini's um, kind of ideological pe- uh, penchants for the peasantry, for an Italy untouched by by consumerism, for this rejection of development, have has actually been latched onto by um, neo-fascist and right-wing groups in Italy as essentially saying, see, you know, Pasolini was elevating this Italy that was unspoiled by, um, you know, urban decadence and, um, you know, the land of immigrants. And, um, you know, this is the the real heart of Italy is this gluten, boden, uh, bloodless soil, right? And of course, Pasolini, in aesthetic terms and even in that personal affective terms, his connection to the land in that way Um, was put to completely different ideological ends. But there is, in in it, inside it, a kernel of conservatism, which can be bent to um, radically different um, ends of the political spectrum. But, uh, you know, he essentially, uh, as I said, grafted that love of the um, peasantry um, onto these communities, marginalized communities of subproletariat, you know, not working class because they didn't even have work um, communities on the outskirts of Rome. And, you know, early on he wrote um, one of the scenes in Fellini's Nights of Ciberia. He was essentially the curator of Roman slang and Roman um, Roman nightlife of prostitutes and johns and loafers and petty thieves. Um, you know, Fellini essentially hired him to be the expert on that world in the in a scene from um, um uh, you know before he turning his um, his own hand at directing in his first film acatone which is um, uh, the word acatone means beggar um, and it was essentially a look at this um, you know subproletariat Roman idler who wants to make a new life and get a job and stop being a John um, and exploiting prostitutes and it's essentially about how that quest to become a kind of good uh, working class, class-conscious uh, bearing um, individual, in fact, leads to disaster. And there's a very similar theme in Mamaroma. So uh, um, so for Pantini, this attachment um, to, um, to poverty and to this rejection of development and progress in capitalist terms um, led him to fixate upon... Uh, a world that was, in 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 his view, um, unsullied by the development of capitalism. And and again, before we get into his relationship to Arte Povera, it's helped it helps to frame things in, um, in some historical terms. Italy, which was a largely agrarian um, country, for you know the the better half of the 20th century, um, after World War II, underwent what is generally referred to as the economic boom or the economic miracle, um, not unlike Germany during the same years. So um, you know, beginning in 1958, um, on the, in the wake of uh, the Marshall Plan, which um, America pursued in um, helping Italy with a great deal of aid um, materially, financially, also using it as a bulwark against um, the growing communist bloc. Because remember, Italy borders Slovenia, right? So it became a very strategic um, political check against this communist East. Um, it, Italy also had one of the largest communist classes in the in the post-war period of any Western democracy. Um, I believe the largest, in fact. Um, and so this american kind of hegemonic struggle to kind of win the hearts of of italians and of italy um, led to uh, not only a great deal of economic support but also abetted this economic boom which saw italy explode in financial and economic terms it saw um you know the the percentage of individuals with indoor toilets and washing machines explode exponentially and these are sort of everyday banal things, which perhaps we take for granted, but the material life of the ordinary, particularly urban-dwelling Italian, um, was irrevocably transformed in the span of something like five years. And whereas for many, and indeed for many it was, um, a salutary change that Italy was finally kind of entering into modernity in a sense that it was finally becoming a quote-unquote developed nation was for Pasolini an, an absolute catastrophe. Um, he, he spoke of it in what he called anthropological terms, that essentially um, rampant consumerism was transforming Italy's way of life on every level, not only the material one, but also the linguistic one. So, um, you know, the highways that now linked various provinces in Italy, what those highways didn't connect, the television did, right? Essentially, in his view, increasingly leveling the incredible diversity of Italian culture and, and dialect. You know, as you know, Yana, as an Italian, um, you know, most Italian, you know, uh, or in the mid-century, certainly more than half of Italians didn't speak Italian at home. They spoke in dialect. And still today, that is greatly the case. But Pasolini saw this um, what he saw is a kind of technocratic um, leveling of uh, an incredible uh, heterogeneous array of cultures into an increasingly um, homogenized um, and singular culture on the level of um, of consumerism, basically. And so, for him, aesthetics became a kind of project to rescue that world as it was increasingly effect- infected by um, capitalist plenty. And he uses that pathological um, medical terminology again and again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it, it's fair to call it a, a sullying, right? As you said, that yes. this natural, organic, blood and soil Italy, of which the Friuli is certainly a demonstration. Is becoming this like global urbanized uh, kind of soup?
0: Yes, you know? and, it, and it's important to it's important to point out that that you know his his attachment to the land was in no way linked to nationalism, right? So it wasn't a it it, it was in, in in no way it might be contiguous to certain fascist um, notions of um, of a kind of purity of the land. But of course, Pasolini was a uh, a profoundly um, lifelong uh, anti-fascist in pretty much every way. And so his version of this land was precisely about its local um, um, non-hegemonic identity, right? That it was about the regional and about um, the um, indissoluble particularities of these different regions and their dialects and... um, and so his attachment to the land in that sense was a rejection of modernity, at least as it was being carried out in neo-capitalist terms. And as I said, he remained a lifelong communist despite having been kicked out of the um, the Communist Party. He, he remained at odds with um, the you know, communist officialdom for the rest of his life and yet supported the party actively um, in pretty much all... Um, aspects of his aesthetic uh, engagements. And, you know, I should note that, again, just to a degree, personal um, biographical background bears upon this. His brother, Guido Alberto, um, was actually killed during World War II um, not by uh, the Nazi fascist occupying army uh, in the north, but actually by fellow communists. Um, So the internecine differences between uh, aspects of the left and even within um, communist forces um, bore upon Pasolini's particularly embattled relationship to um, leftist politics as much as he um, was also completely execrated by the right. So that is the other, um, I guess, paradox that really interests me and drew me to Pasolini was that he was at, at, as much uh, of an outsider to leftist communist politics, as he was a, a complete abomination for um, both the radical right and right. For the Italian bourgeoisie.
1: I mean, this is just such a wonderful demonstration, right, of this paradox that you that's at the center of this work.
0: It's wonderful.
1: Um, okay, where are we?
0: Arte Povera. So yeah, I mean, so basically, I do these case studies. I look different aspects um, uh, in in particular instances of Pasolini at once using elements of avant-garde aesthetics and holding them at bay. So, you know, the irony of the fact that, for example, he hated abstract expressionism and saw it as a kind of literalization of neo-capitalism's um, life kind of rejection of history and historical time. Um, and yet, he painted some abstract canvases himself um, and some of his cinematic strategies um, from his kind of repeated invocation of desert scenes in a number of different films to certain aspects of his own film theory, engage with abstraction in um, some pretty nuanced and, and profound ways. So, you know, that's one of those, again, paradoxes in a particular um, actual case, right? Um, the same with Pop. I mean, he was someone who saw the intrusion of popular um, fragments of consumerist life into the, aesthetic, into the aesthetic realm as something, as kind of a, a, an instantiation of the fact that, um, you know, that culture had just given up at um, maintaining some sort of transcendent realm for art. Um, and yet he, in, in many of his films, Um, includes what we would call um, certain pop elements. Um, You know, at one point in his poetry in the early 60s, he he sort of has this fragment where he talks about an advertisement for toothpaste, which is, you know, in some ways it's the exception that proves the rule because Pasolini was generally not attentive to kind of the... um, uh, aspects of, of modernity in the modern world, like advertising, technology, etc. Um, but there are a number of different instances where he engages with um, uh, with what we would call pop art. And his um, you know he reviews an, a show by Andy Warhol. Um, he uh, you know there are a number of different um, particular um, ways in which he at once kind of uses pop and, uh, and criticizes it at the same time. Um, With Arte Povera, the relationship is somewhat different to the extent that it's the one um, kind of uh, neo avant-garde movement of the sixties with which Pasolini um, shared a a great deal. um, Even if, as I mentioned earlier, he was likely kind of unaware or, um, Unconcerned with its um, development, and Arte Povera, I should note, was formed by the um, critic Germano Celant um, in 1967. Um, and the term Arte Povera, which in English means "poor art," um, basically means a number of different things. But it basically, uh, on its most basic level, means an art that is made with the simplest of means that is no longer bound to the gallery space or institutional framing to uh, the traditional paradigms of painting and sculpture, but also incorporates um, process, um, accident, gravity, which uses materials from um, dirt and sand to rock to also um, uh, synthetic materials. So um, now like Pasolini, arte poveristi, as we call them, those who kind of practiced arte povera. And again, it wasn't an actual um, uh, avant-garde to the extent that it didn't necessarily have a manifesto which uh, various artists signed. Um, a number of artists kind of came and went. Uh, many of them exhibited together, but a lot of non-poveristi exhibited with uh, with the group. But one of their chief concerns was this transformation of Italy on the level of... Um, both this economic miracle and the consumerist revolution um, which it had um, achieved. And, you know, again, this is the same kind of uh, problem that Pasolini was thinking about and, and engaged with on an even more um, aggressive level. The idea that, yes, a revolution has happened but it is not the, the revolution that people on the left had hoped. It's a revolution of, of plenty, of, of um, complacency, of passivity. Um, you know, Guy Debord is doing a lot of very sort of similar things um, with situationism in France in the 50s and 60s. Um, and I talk a little bit about the resonance between the projects of Debord um, and Pasolini. But some of the chief sympathies between Pasolini and Arte Povera were a sympathy for, um, for elements of craft, uh, of the local. Um, what one artist, Yannis uh, Gian, Kounellis, who was a Greek-born um, Italian artist, called the slang of matter. So this idea that even materials can have a kind of slang rather than official um, uh, institutional... Um, pigeonholed uses right this idea of engaging with the peasant world, with what Chalant at one point calls the medieval world, and again that's a kind of pre-modern or early modern um, paradigm. So essentially, uh, a sympathy for the unsophisticated, for um, you know, for art which also operates not on the level of the mind but also of the body, of the sensory world. So Cunelis would incorporate. Into some of his installations, for example, um, burlap sacks and coal or um, ground coffee, so that when you walk into these spaces, you are engaged with the work not just on the visual level but also on a bodily sensory level, which takes us a little bit out of the intellectual realm, right? Into, um, into another form of engagement with work, and I and and that is in some ways what. Uh, Pasolini wanted to do both with his poetry and with his cinema there's a you know at the start of his own film Oedipus Rex which is inevitably partly autobiographical in fact it um, you know it it, it it ends in the in the city of Bologna where Pasolini had studied at university and the opening scene in 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 many ways um, is uh, an allusion to his own childhood but the camera lingers on this canopy of leaves for several seconds and um, it, it Essentially telling us that Oedipus as a child, this is his sort of vision of the world on a, on a primal bodily level that is not just about sight, but also the sound of leaves, their rustling, um, what it means to be um, inside of a body. And so those phenomenological elements uh, you know, it emerged to some degree in Pasolini's work. Uh, much more strikingly in Arte Povera, um, Pasolini was was not interested in kind of the, the accidents or the vagaries of of accident of um of process. Right. Um, his films are all very hieratic and planned. You know, he says at one point, "I hate naturalism. I want to plan everything." Right. So, uh, hence his continued engagement for painting, for figurative painting, which, you know, is the kind of thing that Arte Povera is trying to throw out the door, saying, you know, we don't need um, these traditional art forms to be the way that we engage with the world aesthetically. And yet Pasolini um, clung to them stubbornly. And yet there are so many, not just visual resonances between his work and Arte Povera, um, but also um, a kind of affective and ethnographic uh, love for, the unofficial, for the non-urban, for, um, you know, this this artist, um, Pino Pascali has a uh, an installation which he did um, in uh, 1968 called uh, Agricultural Tools, and it's basically just these tools that he himself kind of made out of wood and straw, and it inevitably conjures up the notion of the artist as craftsman, um, but also the artist as... Peasant, right? As um, as identifying in a sense with um, these uh, individuals on a um, on even a bodily level, and so um, yeah, that's a you know those are some of the points of contact, I guess, with um, with Arte Povera, which I explore in that chapter. And you know, one one final element I would say is. Um, like many elements of of modernism, and here again, Pasolini ends up being very typically modernist, even as he's trying to reject certain elements of modernity, is that he identifies extensively with um, what we would now call kind of the global South. Um, You know, and and he starts out really fixated on Italy's South um, and, you know, uses Neapolitan dialect in his um, film of the Decameron, for example, so kind of contaminating pure Tuscan with Neapolitan dialect, but also, um, you know, Italy's South, because it was agrarian and quote-unquote backward, was for him for a long time this holdout against Italy's economic boom and its consumerist revolution. And as that um, boom kind of extended to the entire country, Pasolini began pursuing um, these pre-modern and pre-historical um, spaces abroad. So he made Dozens of trips to Africa. He famously went to India with Alberto Moravia um, and Elsa Morante. He went. He made a film in Yemen. Um, he had a plan. Uh, a film planned on um, South America. Um, he wrote a draft for a film, which he called Notes for a Film on the Third World. So. Um, like Arte Povera, he was drawn to the quote-unquote third world precisely because of its unsophisticatedness and its, out, its perceived outsiderness to um, contemporary European Western modernity. And you know, he also was driven to that extent by his love for um, the writings of Antonio Gramsci, the most prominent communist theorist who was imprisoned and killed by the fascist regime, um, whose dream and whose life project intellectually was to unite the uh, agrarian peasant south with the industrial north in Italy, um, and to have both of those elements of um, of, of the working class um, who had traditionally been held apart by elements of Italian politics be united in their struggle against capitalism and, and the bourgeoisie. And so that quote-unquote southern um strategy, in a sense, um, was also uh, informs Pasolini's work by way of, um, of Gramsci as well.
1: There's so many threads I want to go into so many things I want to talk about the centrality of language I want to, I want us to sit for a while and talk about Friulian, the dialect of the Friuli yes. and Neapolitan dialects I want us to talk about the importance of kind of the visceral and bodily exploration of art. Uh, how this relates to earlier historical discussions of the natural. And we just don't, we do not in this small, this little podcast have time for it. So you and I are going to have to talk about it after. And uh, everyone else is going to have to talk about, you read the book and then, you know, send our own email. He'd be happy to talk to you. Absolutely. <laughs> all right um i um uh, i i learned about arte povera arte povera, quite a bit uh while i was reading this book and i'm very fa- i was fascinated by it i uh, it makes so much sense that uh you know Pozzolini, the good, it suits like he he it seems like a place he would go right it seems like something and i can that he would really that would suit him but then it's this this thing he's completely antithetical to
0: yeah i mean i think you know again arte Povera was in many ways about breaking the frame about um you know having art be in, improvised to a certain extent performative not subjective to the normal um spatial and temporal confines of how we traditionally approach aesthetics and pasolini was You know, exactly the opposite. It was all about planning and framing and symmetry and kind of hieratic bodies framed in ways that emulated early modern um, altarpieces, Romanesque sculpture. Um, And so, again, this sort of lingering... uh, dedication to um, the figurative, what he would call plastic mm-hmm. world. But yeah, I mean, sure. there are but it's so—it's
1: natural, it's bodily, it's—it's it's, you know, it's this very o- organic, natural. I keep saying natural, but
0: yeah, yeah I mean, so there are instances um, where the the elements of the kind of framed and perfectly um, almost hermetic elements of Pasolini's aesthetic get interrupted. So for example, um, on the opening credits of his film Mamaroma, um, there is a fly which lands on um, the names as they're being listed. Um, uh, and he kept that sequence in, where we see the fly land on what was what were obviously credits in sort of real space. Um, and it's this, in some ways, it's this interruption, this interruption, um, this reminder that the film is um, in process and being made in um, an actual space. And so, you know, it, it, and yet he kept it in there. So there are elements where we're, we're uh, you know, and, and as I point out in the book, there are other sequences, um, for example, in his um, notes for a film on India and in his notes um, towards an African Orestes, which were both kind of um, part travelogue, part exploration of sites that he wanted to make films in, um, part kind of documentary, part meta documentary. He homes in on, um, at one point, just a clump of leaves. He homes in on rudimentary wooden tools in an African village. And these are precisely the kinds of things that the Arte Poveristi were interested in Um, in simulating and in engaging with, um, again, precisely because they were unsophisticated and seemingly outside of history, because Italy's contemporary history, its contemporary reality, seemed to be being made over into the world of corporate design, technocratic language. And so this being drawn to to slang, to um, the quote unquote, third world was a way of holding that brave new gleaming modernity at bay. Mm,
1: nice. All right. Uh, I know that this does not relate to the work at all, but do you have an opinion on his death? Was it that single guy?
0: Um, there have been a couple of really incisive uh, books written on this in recent years, um, and I, you know I think it's one of those things, sort of like the um, Piazza Fontana um, bombing in Milan, that will remain a kind of open wound um, in in Italy, Italian modernity in ways that are uh, inevitably unresolved. I do think that it seems um, highly unlikely that this individual, um, would have acted alone. In fact, he recanted his testimony, um, at a later date in prison. Um, and, uh, you know, Pasolini was, um, too prominent, too smart, um, and too inconvenient an individual and a body, um, you know, and again, the prominence of his body, um, how, much, it went against the grain of, um, of Italy and Italian modernity in a lot of ways. Um, you know, he was an openly gay man who actively played soccer and was unabashed about his sexuality and yet wanted nothing to do with what we would call identity politics and the politics of, um, uh, 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 of gay rights. Um, and yet he was this, um, he was inconvenient essentially for Italian a narrative of Italian modernity. And so it seems unlikely that other forces would not have wanted him disappeared.
1: Sure. It seems, it's it, it just convenient, right? It's just entirely too convenient. Yes. Yeah. I realize, I mean, I sound like a conspiracy theorist no, I mean,
0: here. the but... details of the, the yeah, like you said, we can't go into them here, but the details of the case are really, um, I mean, Pasolini was a very strong man and the idea that this um, young guy, um, would be able to um, to attack and essentially you know beat him, bludgeon him brutally to death on his own is in itself highly unlikely. But when framed by the larger picture, which is that Pasolini had all kinds of um, dirt on contemporary um, politicians um, and the government uh, in, in ways that made him a kind of sitting duck, um, you know at, at that point it, it really becomes pretty much impossible not to believe that there were larger forces in, in play
1: all right on. all right so dr marjan what is next for you more pasolini back to something entirely new
0: um all three uh <laughs> i uh i am uh co-editing a book um with my colleague Alessandro Giamme. Um it's a, basically a uh, an anthology of Pasolini's writings on art history, which will um, come out in, in 2022, which is the centenary of his birth, um, also the centenary of uh, of the March on Rome. Interestingly enough, Pasolini was born the year that Mussolini seized power. But, uh, so that's coming out with Verso in uh, 2022. Um, I am writing a, a, a second book on De Quirico, uh for Yale University Press on, on De Quirico's, um afterlives in the 20th century, particularly in terms of representations of architecture. So it's called uh, Blueprints and Ruins, the architectural Afterlives of De Quirico from the avant-garde to postmodernism. Um, and then I'm working on a, a, a another project on futurism and sculpture, um, which I'm I'm kind of excited about. Um, so I'm and I'm teaching both of my classes right now on futurism and politics, and uh, and so it, it's it, it becomes a kind of way to read the movement through just one of its kind of many aesthetic um, concerns, which was uh, which was sculpture, um, and to think about how sculpture um you know how central it was to the futurist project and in some ways how emblematic it was of these various um ideological um imperatives like you know the the fascist uh imagery of flight um and this kind of virile embodiment and um but you know also uh Kind of forerunner of what we would call kinetic sculpture. Um, So, a number of different areas in which future sculpture, which has been relatively unexamined, um, prove central to the movement.
1: That sounds so great. I'm so excited. This sounds wonderful. Look at you you, busy and amazing. Ara, my old friend, it was so great to talk to you today. Yeah,
0: I, I appreciate it so much. It's, and it's so wonderful to be able to um, talk about this uh, with a friend. And You're, you're such a, an eloquent interlocutor, even <laughs> listening to all of um, the other podcasts. I mean, it's rare to find someone who can put people at ease, but also ask the right questions. So I thank you.
1: Oh, well, that's lovely. Well, there we go. So next time for the next book, you'll talk to me again then. Uh,
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, and
1: ideally we'll get to play together on one side of the Atlantic or the other That's soon.
0: Right. Yeah. All I right. So.
1: Until then, though, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Yana.
1: Mm-hmm. Bye bye.